Bye. By now, you probably noticed that our episodes are getting longer and longer. This just shows that we got more comfortable with the format, and we really do hope you enjoy our in-depth conversations. Now, I'm not going to hold you for long, but since we always forget to plug our socials, here's the places you can follow us. Tumblr.com slash The Art of Pod, at The Art of Podcast on Twitter, and at The Art of Comics Pod on Instagram. Let's jump into this big boy of an episode. Hi, I'm Jaws. I'm an artist, a streamer, and I'm a big girl who paid my taxes today, so everything feels right in the world. Hi, I'm Paul Duffield, a comic creator, but this weekend I was a strange priest in a mask because I was LARPing. Yay! Okay, so uh, Mia is just out of school and looking for anywhere that can take her. She lands in a ragtag restoration and renovation crew who take her under their wing. In the course of travelling through space, repairing and exploring ruins and getting to know her crewmates, Mia learns to look at herself and her past clearly and gets embroiled in an adventure larger than she expected. Mm, very nice. Again, your blurbs actually really encapsules the story very well. I, I really admire that. A- again, my... Have you gone full meme? <laughs> no, 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 no. This one did not feel like one where I could actually meme, but I do more vague saucy blurbs, I've realized, listening back to our episodes. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm the artistic blurber. Found family has become a reoccurring theme in stories thanks to millennials not subscribing to the enforced toxic ideals of boomers. Anna Sunbeam explores that topic not only with main character Mia, but also her crew and love interest. Yet again, we're proven, even in space, the blood of the coven is indeed thicker than the water of the womb. Nice, nice. I think, yeah, I tend to go for plot-based, you tend to go for thematic, which is good. We complement each other. That's an interesting point about found family, actually. That's a really good way of summing up this story. It is very much about, like, forming your family where you find them. I pointed out that I had read two other Tilly Walden comics. That's right, yeah. And I assumed back then that Spinning was her debut, and in terms of being published by For a Second, it was. Spinning came out in 2017. Then on a sunbeam right. in 2018, and are you listening in 2020? All by for a second. Oh right. And I had read spinning and are you listening? But this was my first time with on a sunbeam, which, as we mentioned last time, marks the first time where something is my first experience and your second or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it was really interesting reading this again. Yeah. How did you find coming back to it? Pretty good. I was left with. Because I, I last read this um, not too long after it was released, so quite a while ago. And I'd only been left with sort of like a vague vibe from it. I hadn't really remembered the plot very well. So coming back to it and rereading the plot was really cool. Because it was like rediscovering the same book all over again. And yeah, I had a very similar reaction, to be honest, first time round. As I did second time round, not a lot changed. What was your... How, how do you sort of uh, rate it next to Tilly's other books? So I have to, this is where I have to be upfront and say that it's years since I read Spinning. Are you listening? Mm-hmm. I think I read last year. Spinning really stuck with me and I firmly wish that we do a separate episode on it down the line. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah. Are You Listening didn't stick with me personally that much. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It just didn't stand out that much to me. Spinning is a memoir of Tilly Walden herself. Oh, uh, okay. Right. Since I've read Spinning, I feel like I can see a lot of how she presents herself in her two other books as well. And I have to admit that it took me a little bit to get into on a sunbeam. It might be because I wasn't in the headspace for such a ginormous book. Because let's just say this is a chonker. This is 500 plus oh, yeah. pages. It's huge. One thing I uh, noticed when I read all the way in the back, there's like the, I want to thank blah, blah, blah. And it points out how this started as a webcomic. I was like, ah. Yes, that makes sense because I could feel that in the beginning it had that kind of a little bit of the the fucking around and finding out that a lot of webcomics tend to do before it really found its feet and then took off running. And in the beginning, I struggled a little bit finding that tone, I guess, for myself, a combination of the art style being very different than other comics that I'm used to, even though I have read two other Walden books. And... The fact that this actually segues straight into a question I had for you, one of probably a billion. <laughs> what are your thoughts on handwritten speech bubbles? Ah, well, interesting. I spend a lot of time in my day job talking about fonts, hand lettering, all that kind of stuff. So quite a lot of opinions. Personally, I really like a good hand letters comic. I think the lettering in this is a little all over the place. The in, there's a big inconsistency in font size that doesn't relate to expression. Um, so you can get a sentence that's meant to be said very boldly, written very small, and then a sentence that's meant to be whispered, written relatively large. That's not to say the lettering isn't effective or expressive, which I think it is, but I just think it, it lacks a certain amount of consistency. And again, seeing that this was made as a webcomic, that totally makes sense. It's the same with sort of format and style and presentation when you're working on a webcomic and, and publishing freeform online you don't get to think about that in a kind of a holistic way at the beginning of the project you sort of discover it as you go along set it in the first page and then it can fluctuate or change and I, you know i know what that's like i've spent my life making webcomics so yeah absolutely for me too it's, it's very recognizable and i i think i've been made a note somewhere where I get the feeling that this was, and this is purely guessing for me because I haven't looked into it, but it, I get the feeling that this was picked up along the way, that maybe it was even pitched to for a second or for a second founder was like, oh, this is really good. And then the beginning lacked maybe a little bit of editorial vision. And then for where you can feel like some form of shift where it gets really tidy and very, I don't mean efficient as a negative here, it's just like, it's very clear the story it's telling all of a sudden. It's very, it seems very thought through. And that's kind of where I get the feeling that an editor came into the picture and guided a little bit. Mm. Yeah, possibly. One thing that struck me when I read first was that, because I remember having a similar experience to you reading the first time, it took, took me a long time to figure out that there was a plot initially I thought it was just a sort of like a slice of life in space mm -hmm. and slowly a plot emerged from it but on second read I would say there's actually quite a lot of the plot elements from the end embedded near the beginning enough to convince me that there was a complete plan in place at the beginning and perhaps it just accidentally starts a bit slowly I think the one of the things that stood out to me was that it does have two distinct tones one is this sort of like 
slice of life sit with this crew and the main character as they do their job and work and in flashbacks sit with the character as she goes through the space equivalent of high school and then the other tone is sort of like a very kind of almost fantasy-esque high adventure reminds me of you know if, if all the characters were in super anime style it wouldn't like segments of it totally wouldn't feel out of place it, yeah it's, it's difficult difficult to describe do, do you know what i mean I, I think I get what you're getting at, because if if I had seen this in a manga opposed to a Western comic, I would be like, oh yeah, that's very typical elements of, I would say, Japanese storytelling of this genre. I feel like it's less common in Western comics to kind of have the balls to go for something more obtuse like this, because as you saw, I had so many pages of notes for this, because it's it's yeah. a it's a big, it's a big book. And I think there's a lot to comment upon. I, I guess this weaves right into my first note, which is rich world building, organically introduced, very little exposition, wonderful pacing of panels. To me, that very much sums up in high praise my experience with On a Sunbeam, because I do think it introduces a lot very naturally and matter of fact but in a way where you just accept it instead of it leaving you confused. For example, the fact that the spaceship is a giant fish. Yeah, yeah, it does a lot of its world building very visually. Um, actually, there was a, this is uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about. I think you sort of answered my question already, which was, uh, what do you think of the setting specifically? I personally enjoy it because if this had been a more realistic approach to space and space travel, I probably would have phased out a little bit because I gotta gotta be real and say that space, like sci-fi isn't necessarily for me. It's not a genre I gravitate towards. It tends to be a lot of hokey science talk that just makes my brain go offline because I struggle following along with it. And it's a lot of uh, name drops of systems and planets that I have no relationship with. So I personally enjoy the more fantasy approach to sci-fi where it mixes in a lot of adventurous elements that aren't as common, I dare say, in Western sci-fi. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, I mean, one thing this reminded me of was actually sort of classic shoujo sci-fi, like stuff like Totera. I don't know if you've read that. I think it's from the 70s or something where the creators sort of didn't really bother going in heavily for that kind of technical science fiction, which is all full of like facts and technological problem solving, all that kind of stuff, where it's much more science fantasy. And the setting is is so almost sort of like an aesthetic than something that arises because they're trying to specifically say, what will the future look like? And that's how this one felt to me. It's a sort of a science fantasy feeling. It's almost dreamlike. They say they're in space, but they're almost never in the void. You know, there's always storms and planets and structures and things that they're flying through and around. It's like there is no open space in this world or it's skipped over because it's inconvenient and not interesting. But I love the final effect of that. Despite being a big science fiction fan myself, I love sort of, you know, super grounded science fiction of the kind that you were saying turns you off a little bit. And sometimes this kind of storytelling can turn me off if it just doesn't feel grounded enough. But I really liked this one. And I think it's partly because of that incredibly dexterous storytelling that you were talking about, where there's really deft exposition, just things are dropped in visually. And it's just so charming as well. Like page 99 is a good example where the sequence is 
really lovely anyway, but you've got this strange thing where absolutely every place they visit is always suffused with stars to the point where it feels like there's no atmosphere anywhere, but there are also no one's ever in spacesuits. So they also have no problem sort of like breathing or being there. And it never bothers to explain that but it creates this sense that space is their environment, it's their home, and they're kind of natural in it. And I, th- I thought that was a really lovely feeling all the way through. Yeah, I actually hadn't even thought about the fact that they're never in spacesuits, that the only clothing changes they do is to either be warmer or more temperatured in different climates. But it is very true what you say, that there's always stars, because Kind of to counter what you say, that it never really feels like you're in space. That's what makes it spacey for me, is that sometimes it feels like they're almost visiting buildings that's just hanging suspended in the air. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's weird. It's like they're not, when I say it's not, they're not in space, I mean, they're not in like the real space, which is, you know, incredibly harsh, unlivable environment mm. filled with absolutely nothing. You, you know, it's a terrifying place to be. And it's romanticized a lot, but, you know, the real space is, is just an unlivable place. So at the same time, they are always suspended in large expanses. The sky is always full of stars. There's always often a sense of sort of the void below them. But at the same time, they're always in environments and they're always breathing air. And they're never in that kind of hostile space, I guess. The hostility comes from things that you don't get in space, like weather and, like you said, the cold or, or the heat. Yeah, it's a really interesting sort of almost like pseudo-science fiction. I'm not quite sure how to describe it, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I agree. This is also a very cast-heavy comic. I actually wrote down all the bigger characters and their roles, I guess. So you have Mia, the main character. Then you have Grace, who's Mia's girlfriend, and she's from a place called The Staircase. Then you have Elliot, shortened to L. Uh, who's also from The Staircase, but this is revealed, both of these reveals are later on because they're quite big reveals. Then you have Charlotte, aka Char, who is the captain of the ship called Actis, which is this fish they're flying. Then you have Alma, who's the functioning captain of Actis and is married to Char. And then you have Julia, also called Jules, who's Alma's niece. And these people make up the crew of Actis Minus Grace, because she she only becomes part of the crew at the very end. But what do you think of the cast in the story? Because this is very cast-driven, obviously. It's very character-driven. Yeah, like I said, it has a real sort of slice-of-life feel. A lot of the time you're just sitting with the cast, doing things like their day-to-day work, or playing board games together, or arguing. And I think one of the things that struck me about the story that I really loved about it was was just how kind of natural and organic their relationship to each other is. They're not always lovely people. They can rub each other the wrong way, but they still love each other. They get into arguments, but they have good times too. I thought it was just, you know, I, I, I never once sort of stopped and thought, oh, I'm reading a script. It really did feel like I was sitting with a bunch of real characters, which is one of the, the biggest strengths about the story, I think. How did you react to them? Do you have any sort of fave characters or anything? Yeah, first of just to, to bounce off what you said about the writing, I even wrote down a healthy portrayal of character conflict where it shows that you can have a lot of budding of heads and big emotions and still love one another. And that is something I as a private person need to be reminded because I'm very conflict shy. I don't enjoy big emotions. Not to say that I don't enjoy them in like a 
fictional format or whatever, but personally, I shy away from anger and sadness, for example, in display of others because I'm very uncomfortable with the scenarios that that can evolve into. And this comic is a very beautiful reminder that it's healthy to be angry at one another from time to time. <laughs> and I think yeah. it's uh, it's written very, very well. And also, I, I too noted that the conversations are so realistic. This is how people talk, which is very often a big disconnect for me in a lot of comics, both manga and Western comics, where I feel like the dialogue is very stilted and awkward. And sometimes it's translation. Sometimes I don't really know what happened like it's weird to me because yeah, like we were talking about with Uzumaki yeah right? yeah 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 exactly and writing dialogue between characters I think is one of my personal strengths as a comic creator it's something I feel quite confident in and it's something I really enjoy doing and I think it has to do with me having RP'd most of my life <laughs> yeah that does help yeah it really does and I think that's why it really stands out to me like in on a sunbeam when I recognize that that's also so someone else's strength you also asked if I had a favorite character. And I, I do think I actually have to say Alma, the functioning captain, just because this is going to sound very yeah. narcissistic, but I see a lot of myself in her. <laughs> oh, interesting. She's, right. she's very headstrong. She's very blunt. She means well, but she can come across as crass and very strict. Her love language is keeping things in order. But she has a hard time saying either I love you or I need help. And that is very recognizable qualities or lack thereof for me. So I'm like, oh, I feel very seen by this character. <laughs> right. Yeah, there was one there was one little sequence with Alma that, that really stood out to me. I'm, I'm not going to be able to find it because it's such a huge book and I didn't bookmark it. But it was where the main character had just stood in a zone of a reconstruction project that was unstable and had just been saved. And Alma was, you know, so worried for everybody that she was furious. She was, you know, ready to dress them down to dismiss the main character. And there's a moment where her wife just sort of calms her down and says, hey, look, she's hurt. And suddenly you can see the concern switch from anger to caring in one panel. And that, that really summed up Alma for me. That's just a really lovely, always cares, but struggles with how to express it. Yeah, yeah. Uh... Exactly. I also, I'm very soft for Elle or Elliot because they're, they're a quiet character and quiet characters are a big joy for me because it also challenges the comic creator to express their personality through something else in speech. And I think Elliot is quite successful in that manner. Do you agree or no? Oh, definitely. There's a number of like, I really love the the visual shorthand in this comic, especially for like shocked or surprised, where they have the little round mouths and round eyes. <laughs> um, really amuses me, and and especially when uh, because Elle doesn't talk for most of the comic, especially when Elle does it, it it's just it's really hyper expressive. I think uh, yeah, Tilly did an incredible job making a non vocal character work alongside very vocal characters. You know, Jules especially is is sort of you know a million words a minute kind of character. <laughs> yeah, and putting those two next to each other works really nicely. It really does because it could have been a lot of text on the page if you had Jules next to Jules 2.0, basically, and Jules being <laughs> yeah. definitely the most vocal character, even next to Mia. And I would argue that Mia, especially back in her youth when she was still in school, she's also a quite talkative character. 
But even Mia becomes more quiet together with Jules. And that's also a funny thing that I noticed because I, I seem to recall it being mentioned in this comic that Jules is a former figure skater or a skater of some kind. Yes, that's right. And there's one tiny hint as to how she ended up not being a figure skater. Did you pick up on that? I probably did, but feel free to remind me. So, you, you know, we're told about this mysterious backstory and then we're never told anything else about it, mm-hmm. except for this one sentence where Jules goes, I'm Jules, I do something, something, I can't remember what it was, like, you know, I, I repair ships and punch figure skaters. Ah, um, right, yeah, that's shoot me right by. Right, yeah, so um, there was just that tiny little drop that, like, she must have got, um, <laughs> gotten in a fight. She must have gotten into an argument in a fight <laughs> and then got dismissed from the team. That's amazing, because what I was going to say is that uh, spinning is about when Tilly Walden herself was a figure skater, because that's something oh. she did when she was young, and... I really read Jules as her self-insert in this story. Okay. I wouldn't have guessed that, but I guess since there are hints of Jules in the main character, that kind of makes sense. I was, whilst reading the book, I felt like Jules was like a slightly less mature version of the main character almost. Mm -hmm. Although like the, the whole book is about the character maturing, Mia acts a lot more kind of subdued after school than she does in her school flashbacks. But I don't think that's necessarily a sign of of maturity. I think it's a sign of being a bit withdrawn and unsure of herself. And seeing both her and Jules sort of learn more about themselves over the process of the book, I think is a really, again, one of the the really excellent strengths of the book. Because another sort of theme there is that the younger side of the crew are finding themselves. And the last part of the book is them literally flying off together overcoming their first potential disaster without any parental figures or captains around them, just just by themselves. So I guess uh, maybe this is a book partially about the crew finding themselves, but I wonder how much of the process was also Tilly growing up and finding out about herself, because this must have taken years. I can only imagine, and this is where I wish I had more information on the creation of this itself. I did check up when she was born. She's a 96er, so she is much younger than me. And and you, okay. not to out how old you are. <laughs> but uh, yeah. just that alone makes me very surprised over how mature this storytelling is for when it came out. Because, I mean, then in 20... 18 and, and that's what was when it was released so of course it's been worked on longer than that she was effectively like what in her very early 20s yeah for real because there's a lot of moving parts in this and one of the fun things is that these characters they just feel like they've fallen together and like you said it's got this sort of found family feeling and in those cases it's it's usually that the family are totally non-related but Almost every character has some sort of significant plot relationship to the other characters, as it turns out. You know, they've interacted with each other in the past, or they've influenced each other's stories without realising it. And yeah, to to both write such a long comic, make the slice-of-life side of it work, and also make those plot relationships work. Again, yeah, a round of applause for that. Yeah, it's very impressive. And just one tiny example of how impressive I find the very subtle... Both world building and storytelling itself is in the very, very beginning of Mia being introduced to Grace or the other way around. They are both sitting outside the principal's office, question mark, because they need to do detention. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And Grace is new to the school and Mia 
having very weird social antennas at this age, weird for me, maybe not for others, but weird for me. She's very like brash and straight up with it and no filters. And she comments immediately upon Grace's shoes. She's like, oh my God, kids wear those shoes because they're blinking shoes. <laughs> and Grace yeah. turns weirdly defending about them. She's like, oh, but like, she clearly likes her shoes, right? And then many, many, many pages later, we learned that Grace picked those out to blend in at the school when she was running from <laughs> her funny. home planet. And uh, her family's like, you cannot uh, dress like we do here at the staircase, which they're place is called because they will immediately recognize how we dress hair and that is not an option for you and then she's like oh, okay well how about these blinking shoes i love them and the family's like forced smile thumbs up because they don't even seem to approve of the shoes themselves but they clearly mean a lot to grace and it's it was so lovely to see that tied back so many pages later that the shoes actually meant something yeah and you can if you go back and look at her initial reaction you can you can read everything there you know exactly why she's got that that was the sort of thing that uh, made me realize as I was reading the relatively st slow opener that either the author was incredibly deft at tying things back, having written herself hooks that she didn't at the time know what to do with, or everything was really nicely pre-planned. Not, not sure which way around it is. But yeah, I love that it's the expressions of the family especially stuck in my head in that one reaction panel as being some of my favorite expressions in the whole book. I, I love that that panel <laughs> yeah it's very good we've touched a little bit on the ending of the plot one thing i wanted to ask you was sort of how was your reaction to the sequence sort of starting around the last sort of quarter of the book i'd say where they start sort of training and then going to the staircase as opposed to the rest of the book that's where it felt to me like there had to have been some editorial notes either by a professional editor who really knows what they want and knows how to creatively enforce their comic artist, or they, meaning Tilly Walden, sought out feedback from someone they really trust because, I mean, it, she can also just be really fucking good. I'm not saying that, but it just feels like <laughs> it suddenly gets so tight and so concise and it's Despite there's several storylines in this part of the book, they're going back to the staircase to, to find Grace again because Grace has re returned back home from school because the staircase is her home planet and owned by her family. Uh, Mia wants to go after her because she learned that Char and Alma was initially the one who got Grace out of there in the first place so she could attend school. And when she learns this, she's like, I really want to go back. They agree to take her back after some back and forth. And the crew then effectively gets kind of split up, right? As soon as they get to the staircase, their plan kind of collapses and the crew is split up into different sections. And that could very easily be very messy and hard to follow, but it is so neat. It is. I was never confused. I was never confused who I was following. I was never confused between the switches, uh, switching scenes between characters. I, I think it's just really flawlessly executed. What do you think? Interesting. Yeah, so it's funny that you had such a sort of a positive reaction to that change because I had a, a bit more of a negative reaction. Oh, actually. interesting. Yeah, yeah. This is the first time we've kind of like strongly diverged on such a specific point, I think. Yeah, this is the first time where I feel like we're like meep meep. Because actually, for me, the plot lost me a little bit at that point. Oh. I really enjoyed sitting with the characters and everything had been like really low key. It, you know, it was a school drama. They were flying around space, kind of repairing things. 
and you know they had despite the kind of less down-to-earth setting and fantasy feel there was a very down-to-earth feel to absolutely everything that they were doing it was nothing unfamiliar it was like someone who'd gone to school left school started a construction job with some new friends effectively but in space Mm -hmm. you know and there are hints that Alma and her wife are like ex-smugglers of some kind and it's revealed that they helped people escape dangerous or difficult situations including helping several of the characters in the book flee the staircase which is a sort of a I wouldn't say a lawless zone, but it's completely tight. It's it's completely kind of like blocked off from everywhere else. You need to smuggle people out or in. And, you know, that's exciting. But at the same time, it's effectively haulage. They're not kind of warriors or anything. But then we go to this sequence, you know, suddenly they're, they're training combat to go into a war zone and uh, rescue somebody from a dangerous clan. And everything all goes off and they're in huge fights with dozens of people and they're captured. And it, it was like, it, you're right, it was all executed very nicely, but the tonal shift completely lost me. I felt like the characters and events leading up to it were so much quieter and smaller than these huge YA fantasy slash anime film kind of events that it just didn't, you know, the, the, the change almost felt unearned. Like you sat there and hit sticks at each other for a little bit and then suddenly your adventurer is going to smuggle someone out of a war zone. <laughs> it kind of, I, I don't know, it just it just it jarred. And I, did you not feel that or, or did you sort of just, um, yeah. Oh, this is where I'm really struggling gathering all my thoughts into a cohesive string of sentences. So do forgive me if I go off the deep end here. But to me, it kind of calls back to when we talked about in the previous episode, Step by Bloody Step about how Hmm. by the time they finally were introduced to the Emperor, there was a tonal shift because there was a different focus all of a sudden. You know, it was a more character development instead of uh, surviving the elements, etc. And uh, you pointed out back then that that was very much needed because if we had to linger more in the wilderness with these characters, it would have kind of felt like a slog eventually. And yeah. I, I super agree. I, I would have, it, it would have lost me at some point too, because I would have been like, okay, is, is this all? The same thing would have happened for me with on a sunbeam if there hadn't been that big shift. And I do agree that I do think the little Rocky running up the staircase kind of, now we're practicing <laughs> with sticks, that didn't really work for me because it's by no means long enough. I do think in hindsight, if I was the editor of this, I would have been like, you should weave in earlier that they do combat practice, just because that seems like a necessity when you travel in space. I don't fucking know. Like, make a reason for this to be something the characters go through on a regular basis, so it's not as... It doesn't seem as illogical that the characters would be capable to take care of themselves in a dangerous situation. But with that said, both Alma and Charlotte are former smugglers, like you said. It is not a stretch for me to imagine that they are savvy in combat and that it would be more reasonable to think that they were the ones who would be in charge if something escalated. And I mean, we see that as soon as it does escalate, which is thus, once they reach the staircase, they're immediately dissembled. You know, the crew immediately falls apart. That's where I don't find it as problematic that they aren't suited for combat because they clearly fail, you know? They're immediately taken prisoners or split where some people almost die because of it because they run into a dangerous zone on the planet where they shouldn't be, etc, etc. I super see your point in finding it jarring and not necessarily thinking that it's earned, but 
yeah, that was just not so not my takeaway. I really enjoyed it, and it was about time for me, or else I might have been a little bored. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I can see that. And kind of comparing it to Step by Bloody Step is a good um a good touchstone because I do feel like when you end up with a tonal shift in a comic or or any story for that matter, you're effectively asking for the reader to be ready for it, which is a really big ask because it requires setting things up, prepping them in the right way. And it can have to do with, you know, what your reader had for lunch, whether they're irritated at the moment, whether they're, you know, things entirely out of your control, <laughs> whether they like a particular kind of storytelling, all that kind of thing. So the act of preparing your reader for a tonal shift is really, really tricky. And I guess it just sort of, it, it it's like a kind of a watershed, I suppose. And it left you on one side and me on the other. And I'm trying to put my finger on what exactly it was about it. And I wonder whether it's because of stuff that I've written where I've struggled with this same issue of writing relatively personal events that are tangled up in a large sort of drama that involves combat and so on. And yeah, it's, it's very tricky to sort of like balance those two elements in especially young characters. I mean, one of the things that sort of made me chuckle, but again, broke my immersion a little bit was how amazing L's meant to be at combat because we never really find out all that much about L. It turns out that they killed some ancient being in the staircase and that that made them outcast but that's about the extent of the backstory that we managed to figure out and when L is suddenly kind of Goku style vanishes in front of you appears behind you and has already <laughs> tripped you up before you can see it was just like whoa where did that come from holy shit <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I didn't even remotely think about that. <laughs> I'm, I'm not laughing to, to mock the comic, I'm laughing at your commentary because that's a very funny way of describing it. I can't stress this enough, I'm not trying to change your opinion, I'm just really trying to, to say why I liked it because I super respect that it didn't land the same with you and I, I honestly think it's very interesting for us to finally have this kind of conversation. I've, I've missed that a little bit because we've been so love and peace yeah. all the way up until now. We're too like, yeah, yeah, me too. I think that as well, yeah. <laughs> and this creates like a completely new conversation that I frankly fucking love. When it comes to L, it's one of those situations where I think you either accept it or you don't. When I read it and we learned that L used to travel with, was it their mother? It was, right? Oh, yes. Um, I can't remember the name of the character. But that is supposed to be their, if not their mom, their guardian. That's at least how I read it. That this yes. very impressive woman that Elle is traveling with is some form of guardian. I do think it's their mom, but it doesn't really matter. My point is that they are clearly mapping the staircase. And by now we know that the staircase is brutal. It's a very dangerous, hazardous environment to live in. And I... I personally immediately accepted that to travel around like this and make maps and survive in such a dangerous place that L just knows how to take care of themselves and have probably been raised to survive and deal with it in opposition to, for example, Mia and Jules, who are effectively two babies. So for me, mm. when... <laughs> when L goes full Naruto and does their their map jutsu, it wasn't that yeah, it wasn't that much of a reach for me to to just immediately accept it. I mean, I it didn't even stand out to me clearly before you pointed it out. I was just like, oh, okay, I'm along for the ride. I believe this makes sense. Right, that's interesting. Like I made myself a note here. Um, I've written it doesn't necessarily carry the action as well as the slice of life, 
quote-unquote dreamy becomes quote-unquote ungrounded when they begin exploring the staircase. And I think for me that's partially because although we've been told over and over again that the staircase is dangerous, the people in the staircase are dangerous, we've never felt it. We've never been shown it. Even the little bits that we see of Grace in the staircase before the ending. Her family are relatively caring and, you know, they want the best for her and they're constantly talking about the danger of smuggling her out, but we never see the danger. And the entire culture of the staircase is reduced to effectively a few characters plus some unclear mass of quote-unquote residents, all of whom wear the same hat and seem to carry, carry rifles or bows or something. That vagueness of setting, which I think works really lovely on the slice-of-life elements, when it comes to sort of a culture at war, a culture that you're... And yeah, again, maybe this is because of the kind of stuff that I've been writing for the last 10 years. These are all things that I'm dealing with, like a culture that is extremely dangerous to exist within. I feel like the reader needs to feel that viscerally before that they can accept peril happening to the characters. And I don't know whether that's just me being overcautious as an author, perhaps, or maybe it's me imposing my own worries about my story onto this story and just not accepting it at face value. Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure. Oh, yeah, that's a very interesting angle, though, because this is very much a story I personally would most likely never create. I'm not huge on big world building. I enjoy the more intimate moments. And I do think that's probably one of the reasons why I'm so easy to forgive and forget and suspend belief in a way when it comes to just accepting status quo, because the characters are telling me this is how it is. And I'm just like, okay. That's fine. I believe it. If you right. say it is so. I don't need 500 extra pages of Game of Thrones lore with map building and the kings and queens of Farty Darty. Like, that's not as important to me personally, <laughs> but I also know that some people circle jerk really hard over that. And that's a-okay. That's super fine. I think it really is something to what you're saying that maybe you come from a very different perspective than me in story creating. I create very intimate stories and you create rather grand stories. I mean, what's weird is that I agree with you totally about what you just said. I hate law dumps. I hate you have to learn 90 different pieces of terminology on the first page. But also I do love grand storytelling. I mean, for me, I'm most at home at this nice junction of those two types of storytelling when you get something that feels grand and really substantial grand and also deeply personal where you care about the characters and you can feel the stakes of the grand problem because you care about the characters inside the grand problem. And for me, this story absolutely excelled at caring about the characters, which is why I'm willing to sort of like gloss over that segment and still love the whole thing, but didn't quite excel at the grand environment beyond how lovely it felt to be in that environment with the, with the characters. It's very interesting that you mentioned that kind of lore dumpy Game of Thronesy style storytelling it really does rub me the wrong way. I'm trying to think of a good example of a plot that does both. I, I have an example. Yeah, go on. Magnetic Rose. Oh, yeah. That's one of my favorite shorts ever. By Satoshi Kon. Yeah. It's also set in space. Space is always a grand setting, right? And it requires a lot of information. And especially in an animated short, that has to be extremely fucking efficient. And in Magnetic Rose, you just, you learn so much 
for a very short amount of time. It is very jam-packed with action and emotions. Like, you really care for these characters straight out the gate, and you're left shattered at the end. I will not give away anything specific, but it's a very emotional story. And I think that's a very perfectly executed uh, story where they do a lot of the same that On the Sunbeam does. Way more action-oriented, I will say, but still, it does have the... You bond with the crew, you care about the crew, and then there's some larger elements surrounding them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a perfect example. But yeah, I think that that kind of mix of those two things is supremely hard to do. Sort of do, attempting to do it yourself is like chasing a dragon or something. I've got, I'm trying, but I've got no idea if I'm succeeding, you know? Maybe that's another point to why I'm much more immediately accepting this, because I also keep her age in mind. She's very young, and she is doing this better than I ever would be able to do in this term of genre. It's one of those places where I just have to kind of take off my hat and bow and just be like, I, I respect it. Yeah, and it's hard to hard not to sort of understate the amount of achievement that this book is, especially if she really was 20 when she started writing. Holy crap. That is uh, mind-boggling. But one thing, uh, if we're, we're sort of on the trajectory of pointing out stuff that didn't necessarily wipe with us, then I can take one note that I jotted down, which is oh, yeah. you can super see that the landscape this was created in was roughly just before the last five years, right? And the last five years, I can't state how much has affected stories right. in general, because you have the, the explosion of the Black Lives Matter movement, you have the explosion of Me Too, and all the stuff coming after that has shifted the landscape tremendously. In my opinion, for the better, people who disagree with that, this probably isn't the place for you. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that made me go like a needle of the vinyl was there's a part in the story where the crew has kind of been dismantled a little bit because of the situation you mentioned earlier where Mia has gone into an unsecure area. This uh, lands them in trouble, right? Where the captain, Char, she has to step down for a while and the rest of the crew has to go and work for someone else. And they're working for this supervisor called Joe. Right. I have actually got a question here. Okay. What did you think of Joe? Question mark. You're about to answer. This is where my remark on the story comes in. And it is very connected to the super long-winded intro I did about like the whole shifting of the landscape. Joe purposefully misgenders Elliot, even though she is told that Elliot uses they them. And in the very beginning of the comic as well, they introduce Elliot and says, uh, they're non-binary. And this is where I'm like, I can see. 2017, just like, wing, 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 in the distance. Yeah. Today, people are still guilty of this. And I will say, this is uh, one of the few hilltops I will die on. And I can tell I'm getting very passionate. <laughs> Shit like this needs to be weaved in organically. We are long past the area of me introducing, here's Michael, he's a homosexual. <laughs> like, you don't introduce people like a fucking Twitter bio. And this is something I see so often done, especially in comics, where characters are introduced with their pronouns and sexuality in this very unnatural way, where instead, had they immediately said, this is Elliot, they're blah, blah, blah. You immediately grab that, okay, this person used they, them pronouns, because they're addressed to this way. I recently read a book where they introduced every character with pronouns next to them, like a literal Twitter bio. And I sat here going, it's a book. 
you have the actual God-given gift of language to <laughs> write in pronouns when you describe your characters that you just write they, them, he, him, she, her, whatever. So this is one big crime that really annoys me. But again, I'm much more forgiving to it because I do know that this book came out before this became much more normal. And yeah. then that also leads to Joe feels like a relic by now. I get that people work through emotional trauma very differently. And for some people, it's very cathartic to have this kind of shitty character in your story that is hateful to you because of who you are. And I don't necessarily have an issue with that. But I will say in a story about fucking space where we're flying in fishes <laughs> that just swim through nebulas, I find it really fucking hard to find like a Trump supporter still walking around in the comic and just taking that at face value and be like, yeah, no, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, my note was specifically that every other character didn't matter whether they were a dick. It didn't matter whether they were a dick to other people. They had dimension. Even the bully who locks Mia in the closet and prevents her from saying goodbye to Grace and Grace has to be smuggled back to the planet has a redemption arc and we get to learn, you know, she's a bully because she was mistreated or something. Whereas Joe is just this angry, bitter person who desperately wants to misgender you and that's her entire character. And they leave her kind of stunned and crying and that's the last we see of her. I get you want to have somebody to have that speech that Jules has at her but because of the context of the rest of the book because of the fact that the rest of the book was about development and about working through problems the way that Jules dealt with Joe it felt like it was cathartic for the author to write mm -hmm. and all of the other characters clapped Jules on the back for it but it didn't make me respect Jules more no does that make sense? I agree 100%. If anything, it made me a little bit annoyed because I've already ranted far too long about why I don't like it. And I do think that little story bit where Jules puts Joe in her place, so to say, beautifully sums up why I don't think that's necessarily good storytelling. That's where the webcomic part really shines through. And it feels like it was made for an audience who's going to be like, yeah, you tell her, Jules, you show these turfs that they <laughs> suck ass. And that's going to be like the comment section. And don't get me wrong, turfs can suck a fuck and join Elon Musk on a rocket into the sun. That's great. But uh, it's, it's, it's clumsy. It's heavy handed, in my opinion. Yeah. And everyone's a person, ultimately, and in a story about everyone being a person despite their circumstances joe is less than a person which is it's, it's just a shame i think this is one interesting thing about sort of the setting and, and perhaps a better way to illustrate how i felt that the characters were super grounded but the culture wasn't necessarily grounded when i talk about world building and when i think about culture I, i'm not thinking about names and places and the dynasty of kings that i've got to tell you one king at a time <laughs> or something like that I'm thinking about the actual lived experience, the world that the characters have grown up in, the values that it's given them, the way it makes them think about things like gender and sexuality, the way that it makes them think about each other and their role in society. That's, that's for me, true world building. When an author has thought about how the culture that they've embedded their characters in makes their characters grow or not grow. And I think in this case, we're flying through space in a fish but the characters have grown up in the 2010s do you know what i mean yeah that's beautifully put i couldn't agree more and i think that's that's such a intellectual way of approaching it the way you're putting it now that truly is 
the same kind of world building that I'm horny for is where it feels like an actual lived in world where there is an entire system. It's just that I don't need that system explained to me. I just need to believe that the characters themselves believe in it. Yeah, you need to feel its touch on the characters without being told. There aren't sound effects in this comic. Oh, I thought of you actually. Yeah, I noticed for the first time. And I normally I loved don't notice. It. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, I was really flabbergasted by the time I noticed because I also made a note that sometimes it could be a little hard for me to read the movements of the characters because the art style is very simplistic and mm. quite static at times. So it doesn't have the squash and stretch and the exaggeration is rather on the mild side, I would argue. Yeah. So when characters leap off of things or jump or move suddenly, it's not illustrated with grand gestures. So sometimes I could be a little lost as to what the character was actually doing in a panel. But regardless of that, I was like, hmm, I am not missing sound effects here. And I wonder if it actually has to do, funnily enough, with the art style and how uh, minimalistic it is. But then suddenly it has elements of rich details. I took, for example, where that first really stood out to me was page 107. Oh, I've got 107. That's one of my bookmarks as well. <laughs> and it's where uh, L is sitting inside a wall in a house that they're doing restoration work of. And it's just like when you sit down and actually look, nothing is realistically recreated here, but it's still so detail heavy. And the, the, the craftsmanship is beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that we haven't really talked about art yet because we normally dive into the art straight away, but we've been sort of just talking pure plot and dialogue and, and so on. So there's this, and the artwork sort of, in general, it kind of, it sneaks up on me a lot because it, it feels quite fast. I don't know what it's like to draw, but to read it, it has a kind of like an effortless quality to the line. It's often mm -hmm. relatively inaccurate, not in a bad way, just in a sort of like a expressive way. I wouldn't say that the sort of the character continuity was in, Incredible from panel to panel, but I was never confused about who, which character was which because the art was so effective. Oh, that's interesting because I made a point that there were times I was confused about the characters. Oh, interesting. Okay, right. I can see how that might happen because it, it does it does suffer a little bit from same face, different hairstyle. Especially between L and Alma, I could blend the two of them together. Oh, that happened to me a lot in the sequence in the staircase when the lighting changed and you couldn't tell the difference yeah. in the color of their hair. Before the staircase, I, I didn't really have much problem because they did take pains to draw, you know, relatively different hairstyles and so on. The art is really accomplished, but I couldn't point to you any specific instances where, you know, I could kind of like slam down this page and prove that. Do you know, do you know what I mean? It's just always doing a really nice job. There's a lovely kind of economy to the style where it's not trying too hard. And we've discussed this before in other comics. And I, I know that oftentimes, because I've had conversations with artists who I absolutely admire for their work being like this, oftentimes those artists see it as a weakness. They wish they could be more detailed. Oh, isn't it always like that, though? Which is often such a shame, because for me, this kind of style is perfect for comics. It's expressive. I, I couldn't agree more. It's economical, it, you know. Alive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, I loved the artwork. And I've made a few notes of some 
really lovely little panels. Uh, panel hundred, sorry, page hundred forty-seven was one that stood out to me. Oh yeah, when they're on the hoverboard. Yeah, just the use of space there and that lovely kind of like moment. You can really feel Grace leaning into Mia, and you can really feel Mia's sort of mixture of pride and slight embarrassment. She's sort of cool and awkward all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very sweet. Yeah, and to, to bring out that much in, in just this little figure drawing, it's, uh, I think, you know, that's, again, top-tier artwork. On page 229, it's when Mia has learned that Grace has to return to her home planet. And on the bottom panel, you just see a bunch of fishes fly through the silhouette of Mia, and it's such a, an expressive and evocative way of showing that she's kind of losing it, like Mia is spilling over emotionally. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I've actually got a bookmark here. It's another one of them I, uh, that really stood out. I love how she's not toned at all, like she's just lines, mm-hmm. and then the fish are really colorful. Did you notice how this particular palette the yellow, peach, red, and orange that comes out occasionally is associated with the staircase and emotional turmoil. Oh, no, I did notice there were switches in colors, but I never sat down to see where they happen. But that makes a lot of sense, though, because they're rooted in Grace and her background. Yeah, yeah. I think they're also excitement colors as well. You see them in this um, sport that Mia absolutely loves and wants to do, which is also quite kind of like a dangerous sport. But yeah, there was one thing about both of these pages, actually. That, like The one thing, my one little wish for the artwork, on both 147 and 229, I wouldn't have put a panel board around either of those panels. Right, you wish them to be free? Mm, yeah, and that's the one thing the artist never does, is just drop the panel border. I personally love that kind of thing if it's done in a way that doesn't confuse the reading. And I think it just would have allowed those moments to like breathe a little bit more, to stand out. But again, personal preference. I agree with you, but I do firmly believe that this comes with experience because I know when I was much younger, I put borders around everything because I thought them's the rules because that's kind of what you're <laughs> exposed to, especially if you read very rigid comics like not to always put them on blast, but Marvel and DC and stuff like that. Yeah. But once you get introduced to more indie comics or even manga, they are much more willing to break those quote-unquote rules. And I, I do firmly think that's just an experience. It might also be a taste thing, but I do think it's an experience thing. I think doing it right is the experience thing. If I look back at my earliest comics, I just went crazy. My panels are all over the place. <laughs> Have you ever read Clover? It's a, no. it's a manga by Clamp. It's got really super experimental layouts, some really lovely use of negative space and silhouettes forming panel shapes and every page is experimental. It doesn't actually read very well, to be honest, but I read it when I was at a very formative age. I think I was about 15 or something. And after I read it, I was like, oh my God, you could do anything in comics. And I, <laughs> I proceeded to do anything in comics and not really think about what it meant or why I was doing those things, but just because they were cool, you know? And then I kind of calmed down a little bit and I figured out that, hey, the reader needs to know what's going on at the same time as me being experimental and all that kind of stuff. So it's that sort of, I think that the maturity is the genuine connection with the idea that your reader is a person reading your work. You're not just making your work because that's your work. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I guess that's correct. I'm looking at a page. I haven't read Clover, but I'm looking at a page and I can see what you mean with the very free flow paneling. I personally am a sucker for it when done. I assume what you would call correctly. But it's also one of those inherently big taste things, right? 
at the end of the day, that's the thing that's so tricky with art in any form is that it is so highly subjective. And just the fact that I really enjoyed the ending and you found it a little abrupt, it just speaks to that there's not necessarily wrong or right, but just taste. Yeah, very true. So it's simultaneously there's no such thing as quality and there is such a thing as quality all at once, but it's all subjective. It does my head in. (laughs) Yeah, no, that is very relatable. And I guess if I were to sum up why this book really struck me is because it has a lot of vulnerable heart. It feels Mm. like it comes from a deep place of sincerity. That's something I admire greatly because that's what I want to do too. I don't want to bring in the comic dude bros and i like i don't try to cater to a larger audience i try to cater to people who feel like they too missed the kind of stuff that i create either when they grew up or currently growing up and that's what on a sunbeam is for me it's that kind of very earnest raw storytelling that it is like a take it or leave it kind of situation and i take it yeah totally like I said, with Laura Dean keeps breaking up with me. I'm just so happy that this is, exists and it's been published. I sort of grew up desperately wanting comics to make comics like this and for comics like this to exist. And I'm so happy it does. I'm so happy it got published. I'm so happy Tilly is a comic creator making things like this. Do you have any more? I Since you had a million little bookmarks, do you have anything else that you want to... Well, let's have a look. Uh, one thing we haven't talked about all that much is the colour and the light in this book which i absolutely loved i've marked out page 33 oh yeah when they're sitting in the the hole in the wall yeah that's right and this sort of lovely kind of i mentioned it before this sort of orange peach red yellow color scheme comes out and it just feels like really warm and intimate and sort of small the way that they're surrounded in darkness with these little sparkles and the reduced palette sometimes that works well in comics sometimes it doesn't but i think it works exceptionally in this comic all the way through i adore the coloring of this as someone who usually tend to gravitate towards black and white comics personally this is the exact way that i would do colors myself as well if i were to do colors just very flat tones nothing too fancy but to that extent it just works seamlessly yeah this is like this is the way i wish i could color i feel like i just go overboard I do everything realistically, but I'd love to be able to color in a sort of like a story-centric, impressionistic way like this. Again, one of those like grass is greener, because I'm sure that people look at your stuff, like me included, it's like, oh, it's so detail-heavy and beautiful, and, and it looks like every panel took like ages to make, and I'm sitting there, oh, wow, where do you find the energy to do that? I, I bow down. I mean, I barely do is the answer. It's taken 10 years to do one comic. That is kind of the reality of doing something that intricate, though. That there's no shame in that. I just think that's a reality that a lot of people omit because we sadly do live in this fucking fast-paced nightmare. So we're not allowed to sit down and actually make our magnum opus that you're doing. And I, and I personally really, really, really love that you do that. I think that's fucking great. Thanks. And yeah, hopefully one day I will finish. <laughs> um, I believe in you. Thanks. Like talking about like beautifully expressive artwork as well, page 66 is lovely. Oh yeah, when she is uh, seeing the fish being flown. Yeah. The, the little sports fish. Yeah, and you can almost feel her being rippled by the effect of the fish going past. And 
it's almost slightly like she's underwater, but not at the same time. And I like the expression is so simple. It reminds me a little bit of um, Hergé, you know, the Tintin artist. Oh, yeah, yeah. It has that, uh, I never know how to pronounce it. I say Ligne Claire, but that's probably not how you oh, pronounce a, it at all. Ligne Claire. Oh, of course, it's French, isn't it? Yeah. Of course, it's not pronounced like it's written. It's like, mia, mia, mia. Exactly. <laughs> sorry to any French listeners, but that's sorry. <laughs> I'm just going to keep saying Lake McClare. Everybody knows what I mean. <laughs> Aside from the French. Yeah. <laughs> Can I point out especially one bookmark that I really wanted to highlight? Oh, yeah, go on. It's several pages, actually. And it's uh, it starts on... 339 let me check that i got that correctly yes when they have arrived at the staircase yes and they're flying through the environment of the staircase and it lasts for several pages it lasts all the way from 339 to 343 and all of these pages are just full splash art pages of environment and i was so blown away by these pages yeah. Because again, they're they're not heavily detailed in w- the way you think when you automatically go to heavily detailed stuff, but it's detailed in the way where it it stands apart from the rest of the comic, but not in a bad way. It just really jumps out at you. Yeah, beautiful composition in these. Each one of them could be a poster. Uh, another little bit that I've got begins with that lovely shot of L in the conduit with all the circuits. And then after that, we have, it's like their first kind of date when they don't really realize they're dating. Another lovely wordless sequence that really pulled me in. And you can really feel their their kind of hesitant intimacy growing throughout the sequence. That whole sequence right up until they get home and you see Mia lean her head on Grace's shoulder. I just mm. thought that was beautiful. It, it's very, very beautiful. What was your thought on... Because aside from the, the fish ship, there's not a lot of creatures in this until the very end where we are introduced to this big fox spirit, question mark. I, I know you you weren't like as in, invested in that part of the book, but did you did you enjoy that element? Um, if I'd read that short sequence as like a short story or something, I would have been really enchanted. But again, it just, at a time when I was already tonally a little bit kind of, out of it with the story it was just yet another thing that was introducing something we'd never heard about in the plot before and that i wasn't ready to experience in this universe on top of everything else so i i I don't think i did enjoy it in context for that reason Mm. um how about you no i think further along the same lines of me just enjoying that part of the story i liked it because it spiced it up a little bit to me, it did kind of signify why the planet is dangerous because there's all these toxic gases and stuff surrounding the fox. And it wasn't even all that clear if the gases came from the, the dying fox itself, which I thought was very intriguing. It gave me an insight in self-imposed world building that I enjoyed, but I can see a lot of other people be like, what the fuck? This just feels half-assed. This should have been explored and explained more thoroughly. But for me personally, it gave me just a right little sauce that I enjoyed. You know, if I was going to kind of be a bit arrogant and pretend to be an editor of this, what I would suggest in most of these cases is that you can overcome these problems of jarring tonal shifts just by introducing it it needn't be more than a line of dialogue or an image in a book that you see or open on someone's desk you know something really really subtle like that just to give you an impression that something like that could exist 
so you're kind of mentally prepped for it when it does exist. But I will say, I personally don't really enjoy when that is done because that's when I'm like, oh, this is either a MacGuffin or it's a Chekhov's gun or whatever. I It stands <laughs> out so much to me that I keep waiting for it to come up again later. And I think that's why I just enjoy the, no, this is how it is, ploink in your lap. This is how it okay. functions. Not gonna excuse it or explain it. Have fun, bye. I personally enjoy yeah. that because I've been exposed to far too many stories where they do that. Oh, did you did you see that little that little Easter egg in the background? Yep, should have picked that up on like minute two of the movie because now it's super <laughs> relevant. And I'm just like, nah, nah. As a storyteller, if you're aware of those, yeah, and I, I I guess for me that can ruin my immersion a little bit because I'd rather be completely absorbed in a story than to be aware that I'm reading a story. And I think that is just what On the Sunbeam was for me. After a certain point, I stopped thinking that I was actually reading a story and I was just part of it. I was just along for the ride. Yeah. Okay, right. Maybe the reason I was sort of pulled out of it a bit was, is because for whatever reason, I never quite fully got there. I totally see what you're saying about the value of just being able to accept things as they come. And maybe part of it was that there's a lot of this is so delicately written in, in that it relates back to itself a lot. You know, stuff you don't realize was significant when you read it turns out to be significant, but not in a kind of like, ah, oh, I got your way, more in a kind of like, oh, emotional resonance way. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe the, the part of the problem with that sequence is that it was meant to, I felt like I was meant to know more about it because this is the being that L had the problem with and killed. And I, I was waiting for some sort of sense of emotional significance or resonance or maybe something to do with L where I'd understand L more. And I came out of the sequence and I was like, oh, okay, it's just ended. Well, there are these cool things. Uh, sure. Yeah, no, uh, you saying this makes me realize that a lot of Elle's character is based on the fact that they are a, I guess you can call it selective mute. They don't speak out of choice. And you kind of go the entire comic waiting for that bomb to suddenly drop. Like, why did they stop speaking? Will they ever speak again? And I will say that that maybe is not the the biggest or the strongest character trait is the fact that it's all about just seeing l speak again by the end of the comic that's kind of the resolution right to this being unraveled yeah and we don't even see what uh what they say it's it's just they lean in and and say something that's then cut off by the panel. Which I thought was really clever. I really enjoyed that because I assumed that that would be the only time they spoke and I would have respected that so much more than the fact that they then suddenly proceeds to speak a whole fuck ton with this character. Oh, that's right. They're perfectly happy speaking with anyone from the staircase, but not anyone outside. Yeah, that did strike me as sort of, you know, when a character has like two different colored eyes because the author wants them to be cool. Um, <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like... Don't call out teenage me like that, please! <laughs> I had two it's, it's characters like... like that. Oh, really? Yes. I only say it because I know it. I've done it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, L as our entire character made me feel a little, bit, uh, a little bit like that. It's just like, L's really cool and dark and they have a cool backstory and, you know, they can do Naruto shit and... Um, <laughs> They killed an ancient being, but no one really understands them, and they're selectively <laughs> mute, and they're from this badass place, and <laughs> you know what I mean. Oh my god, the Whereas... more you break this character down, the more I'm like, oh no, you're so right, and I still kind of like them. <laughs> yeah, I like 
I think my issue was I wasn't prepared for a character to be like a character like that to be in this book where everyone else is just like, yeah, I went to school and now I repair old buildings. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's completely fucking losing it because it's so true. <laughs> I now really crave the spin off where L just becomes Liam Neeson from Taken. It was like, I will find you and I will kill you. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere is there's the L spin off where. Uh... <laughs> Elle is just like questing through the galaxy, doing uh, <laughs> fighting the next bigger boss. <laughs> oh, yes, that is unironically Tilly Walden. If you're listening and you don't hate us for turning this beautiful character into a Naruto sidekick, that's the spin-off <laughs> I genuinely want. Uh, so, is there anything else that like stood out for you? I think I've gone through all of my major bookmarks now. I was prepared for this conversation to take long because the book is very thick. Which is funny because Uzumaki is technically longer, but Uzumaki just, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it isn't that deep. And this has no. a little bit more layers to it. And that is that is not a critique of Uzumaki because I love it. It's just a very different story, right? Very different execution yeah. and everything. So I personally was very ready for this to be a, a, a long, meaty episode. Yeah, I mean, we've got to get longer each time. Eventually, they'll be 10 hours long. <laughs> I, I honestly do think that our format is just going to vary and already has organically shifted into just how either long or complex or both that the comic is that we're discussing. Because Step by Bloody Step is a short comic, but it has a big topic and big world. So it, regardless, the episode became long. Yeah. And we're also like encountering all of these things in discussion for the first time. I think there will come a point at which, you know, we've we've read three wordless comics. We don't need to comment on wordlessness anymore, like that kind of thing. What do you mean? We're we're not gonna get on up on the soapbox about toxic masculinity every episode. <laughs> I mean I'm happy to. <laughs> let's make it a tradition. Oh my god, let's soapbox time. Let's uh yeah, we we just like shoot in a beep 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 soapbox. <laughs> that that's when you see the huge drop off of listeners. Yeah. Oh man, I haven't looked at any of the the, the listener graphs since the first episode. I've not shorted myself that way. That stuff I obviously do not have any access to. I presume, but I also never go check reviews or ratings or anything because that stuff just fucking terrifies me. So the only thing I see is when my friends or mutual sends me everything that I then pass on to you. Oh right. Which is a lovely way of experiencing it. I like that. Yeah, and that's honestly the only way I want to experience it. Unless someone goes through the effort to reach out to one of us personally and be like, you guys fucking suck dick and you can eat my farts. Which I suspect isn't going to happen. And if it does, then do you want to talk about it, buddy? If you're out there, do you do you need a hug? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. aside from that, I, I can't picture that ever happening. So, But I can say we do have a growing audience. I think we've got about... 60 or 70 regulars by now? No! Okay, I'm terrified. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I was so opinionated in this episode, Paul! <laughs> as far as I can tell, the, the audience are all female and all from Norway, according to the statistics. <laughs> what? But, uh, I, I, well, I, I wish I knew 40 ladies uh, from Norway that well, but I don't. <laughs> In two weeks, we'll be discussing Witch Hat Atelier, written and illustrated by Kamame Shirahama. Yeah, see you for that, I hope. Uh, if you're still here after this girthy, meathy episode, then uh, 
thank you for your endless uh, devoted love and passion. Well, I'll see you for that. Yeah, looking forward to it. See you then. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Do um, we know what we're doing next week? Yeah. <clears throat> uh, not next week, Sorry. though. <laughs> <laughs> we, we were doing so good, Paul. We're doing so we good. Last episode yeah. didn't fuck it up once. Here we are. As, as stuff oh. by the Wachowskis often does, to be honest. Yeah, sadly, the, 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 is that how you pronounce it, Wachowski? I've always said it wrong. I anyway, <laughs> so I, I always said the Wachowski, but I think that's the dude from Monsters. <laughs> 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 anyway, the, the, the Matrix sisters. <laughs> of course, we had luckily a whole fucking tangent or two that can go out, but yeah. I do firmly, and I was very prepared for this to be. Uh, a, a girthy meaty episode because the the comic girthy. itself <laughs> nim, 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 nim. <laughs> wow that is what got you after sitting here going all chiputin on this thing oh my god <laughs> I, don't know, I just never heard the word girthy really um, in context with us no, oh, no okay. i've heard the word okay girthy, okay because but... i was about to say you don't talk a lot about dick do you huh <laughs> No, no, just not in context of the conversation, that's all. <laughs> it was a girthy conversation. No, I was going to say the book is girthy. <laughs> you cut me off. <laughs>